Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Heather Poole, who is the author of Political Morning, Identity and Responsibility in the Wake of Tragedy. This was published in 2021 by Temple University Press, and it is a deep and fascinating dive into thinking about essentially what mourning is, particularly with regard to politics and how it may have an impact on our own politics. Um, Heather's focus is particularly in the United States um, in terms of the focus of this book, but I'm going to let Heather tell us a little bit about that. I'd like to welcome Heather Poole to the New Books Podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this particular project. Hi, Heather. Hi. Hi, Lily. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I I also should note we apparently have a thunderstorm, so there may be some thunder in the background, so just FYI. Um, how I came to this topic, um, so there were there's sort of two two routes to this topic. One of them is my own experience in um, Lower Manhattan on September 11th, as I was going to work one day, and there was a there was a terrorist attack, um, and that I, I'm not sure it, it was conscious that that affected um, what I ended up writing on, but I also think it's an interesting example of most. I think at least most academics end up writing on things that are deeply meaningful to them, um, to that, that have personal significance, um, either from their background or an experience, um, or perhaps even a loss that they've experienced. Um, so that's one route. Uh, and the second route is when I was um, doing my finishing up my coursework at the university of Washington, um, uh, in a critical race theory class with Jack Turner, we read, uh, Ellison's invisible man. Um, and I was really struck with um, the sort of eulogy, uh, uh, and I can't actually remember who the characters were at the moment, but there was this eulogy, this character that was completely fascinating, um, and Chip directed me to read a piece by um, Simon Stowe, Pericles at Gettysburg and Ground Zero. And both of those things in, uh, together really got me thinking about how does death work? How does death sort of move us all to engage with one another, to engage with our political community, to withdraw sometimes, um, to, to recognize our interdependence. Um, and so that became a very interesting question to me. What, when is death political? When isn't death political? Um, what's the process that it goes through in order to become a political salient, a politically salient event? Um, and then how is it used? Is it used for good ends? Is it used for bad ends? Does it support justice or injustice, exclusion or inclusion? Um, et cetera. So that's it's a little bit about how I ended up um, at this topic. And and this is a really interesting um, dive into a number of case studies. But I before we get to the case studies, which also includes 9-11, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this sort of broader theory, because this is a book of political theory, but it also has a lot of engagement, obviously, with practical politics and political outcomes. Um, so it's a fusion of political theory and political science. Well done, Heather. Um, and, and so you talk about the process, process, 
I'm, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it. How do Processual. I say it? Processual. Processual. Thank you. Um, I feel like a really bad podcaster. <laughs> uh, the processual theory of political mourning and that this, in fact, generates meaning out of a particular death or deaths, um, as you note. Um, and this is, you know, of significance in terms of politics. Can you talk a little bit about this kind of broader umbrella theory that you use to frame and analyze the case studies? Definitely. Well, um, yeah, I, 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 I hope what I do has managed to blend theory and, and politics in a meaningful way. That was actually literally one of my goals. Um, I love political theory. I teach Locke every semester, um, but I did not want to write the 479th thousandth dissertation on, on John Locke. Um, and so it was really, and, and the reason I came into political theory is because I was interested in politics. I, I think politics is super fascinating. And I did, even from the time I was in high school, I just didn't even know that there was a, a field like political theory where I could talk, use the tools of philosophy to sort of analyze um, what was going on in the world around me. Um, and so thank you for saying that. I, I really appreciate that. That was really one of my goals. Um, and then in terms of the kind of larger framework of the book, um, the two concepts that I'm most interested in, in kind of excavating are questions of identity with a particular focus on racial identity um, and identity formation in the United States and questions of political responsibility. Um, and so the claim overall is that in these moments of highly visible death, whether it's of individuals or of thousands, um, we identify the people that we identify with are the people that we feel responsibility to act in the names of. And so if we don't identify with people as one of us, then we don't feel any responsibility to act. If we do identify the person who has died or has been harmed as, as one of us, the we of we the people, then we feel some sense to, to some obligation to act um, on their behalf. And if, if not on their behalf in their name to prevent similar um, uh, similar things happening in the future. And so these two concepts of identity and responsibility um, are, are really the kind of key theoretical um, things that I'm trying to, to excavate. And so in that, so in looking at a variety of different events that, um, that all end, well, that all begin essentially with someone's death, um, trying to think about what are the commonalities that we see amongst all these different um, events, even though the contexts are radically different, the time is different, the outcomes are different, the number of people who die are different, the locations are like, all of these things are different, right? Um, but my argument is that there is a similar kind of process that happens throughout all of these events. Um, and so the first one is a, a sort of contested context, right? where the question of whether or not a person who is in this identity category belongs, right? Whether or not they are one of us and whoever is defining that us. So in the United States in 1911, are, are Jewish and, and Southern Italian immigrants in New York, are they really Americans? Um, and, and, you know, the dominant answer at that point is no, <laughs> or at least not quite. They're certainly not quite white. Um, and so some event some discussion in the public sphere about whether or not these people belong as Americans, right? So that's the kind of contested identities, the context of contested identities. The second thing is a highly visible event, right? So the Triangle Fire, the murder of Emmett Till, September 11th, um, Black Lives Matter, right? So there's an event that is not just locally significant, um, 
but often nationally significant and a, and a source of national conversation, um, widespread reporting, major networks um, with large headlines or, or sort of leading stories in television coverage about this particular thing. Um, so that the average person is probably going to have heard about it and know some of the details about it. Um, the third thing is, is how particular individuals or agents um, sort of take up the, the death that has occurred and do something with it. So whether that's the members of, of the person's family um, who refuse to sort of let this person's death go unnoticed, um, whether it's political figures who um, mobilize a death to call for legislative change, whether it's social movement figures, um, a whole variety of individuals can sort of pick up the banner um, of, of this particular death and use it to do things, right? And they can do good or bad things. Um, they can do normatively desirable or normatively undesirable things, um, but they do things. And they, so that's one of the things that I think is really interesting is like, we can't really predict this because it turns out human agency is real and people do things, right? And they do unexpected things. It's one of the reasons that I love Arendt is that, 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 that notion of, of sort of unpredictability, the newness, the, the, the always unfolding possibility of what it means to be humans. And so agents just do things that don't make sense and that are unpredictable and that no one could have foreseen. And sometimes the people that you think are going to be the villains in the story end up being the heroes and vice versa, right? Um, and so, so that story of like human agency is, is really important because people make choices to, to strategically try to get things to happen. Um, the, the fourth con sort of concept is responsibility. And, and, and here I'm particularly drawing on sort of uh, critical legal studies, thinking about the limitations of legal responsibility and sort of law as a, a means of getting us to justice. And my argument is that law is necessary, but not sufficient. Um, and so if we're, if we're interested in not just redressing past instances of injustice, but also creating conditions for future justice. We have to think of responsibility not just as a legal concept, but as a political concept. And so the I think the example that is that is most easily understood is the Titanic, right? So like the Titanic was lawful. Like they had performed their legal responsibilities to have however many lifeboats they had. Um, so they didn't break the law, therefore there was no holding them accountable for breaking the law. They had done an immoral thing, yeah but they hadn't broken the law. And so after the Titanic sinks, there's commissions on both sides of the Atlantic to say, okay, so they did what was lawful, but they, but we can change the law to make a different thing lawful. And that's exactly what happened, right? So both um, the UK and the United States mandated that you have to have a lifeboat seat for every passenger, right? Um, so that's an example of a, the difference between political responsibility and legal responsibility. And so in all of these cases, there has been some legal process it's almost always unsatisfactory because the problem isn't one of individual responsibility. It's one of collective responsibility, political responsibility. Um, and so it's in these moments when something happens and the law is insufficient or the law is made insufficient um, through the actions of political agents uh, that we can, we can start to see how legal and political responsibility are really different. Um, and why I think it's really important to talk about political responsibility, not just legal responsibility. Um, and then finally, the, the last piece in the process is political change. So in all of the cases that I look at, there's some kind of legislation or executive action or war um, uh, that, that occurs. Um, and, and that 
political change tells us something about how identity and responsibility have sort of come together in a political way to lead to actual change on the ground. So again, the, the kind of five parts of the process are context, visibility, agents, responsibility, and political change. So that's a little bit about the, the kind of overall um, framework of the book. And particularly because this is focused in the United States, or the examples are specifically in the United States, you're also um, focusing on the U.S. democracy and that there's a connection between sort of political mourning and democracy, specifically American democracy. Obviously, we have seen, as you note, um, and and you're, you're far better versed in this than I am, classical demonstrations of mourning. Um, the Greeks did a lot of it. Um, but this is contemporary and it's a little bit different in terms of the political mourning. Can you explain the connection to sort of the American democracy and what role mourning has in it? Absolutely. Um, so I, I have discovered a great love for John Dewey, um, in part because, again, I teach intro to political theory every semester, which is delightful. Um, But also, the social contract just dominates the story of of sort of, you know, what is government? How should we think of government, um, et cetera? And there's some really good, as we, you know, have learned, if we don't have that basic fundamental social contract model, all sorts of terrible things result. But I also think it's an insufficient model to really think about A, where government comes from, um, and B, how we should think about um, our obligations and responsibilities to one another. Um, and so in this book, I'm really thinking, I'm really drawing from from John Dewey's conception um, as he lays it out in The Public and Its Problems. Um, and, and imagining government not as a contract, which is sort of cut and dried as um, as one of the authors on responsibility that I discuss uh, talks about it as a kind of moral calculus, right? That like, I owe you this and you owe me that. Um, and that may not be a particularly good way of thinking about our obligations um, in a democracy, right? It doesn't mean that I give you everything and you give me nothing. That's definitely not what it means. But that, but that we owe one another, I don't just owe it to myself and I don't just owe it to my family. I owe the fellow members of my political community um, the opportunity to flourish at the, at the very least, or at the very least, the opportunity not to be harmed by our collective power, right? Um, and so in a democracy, like if we can imagine, if we can imagine an actual existing democracy, which we don't have, but if we can imagine in a democracy where all lives actually mattered, right? And we responded to unequal suffering and unequal death as if all lives equally mattered then we can imagine that if it becomes apparent that there is a subsection of the population that is suffering a thing that other parts of the population are not suffering, you can imagine that we would take up that responsibility and say, what can we do to reduce this? What can we do to to make it so that you have as full a life chance as possible? Um, And then it's actually our collective responsibility to one another to trust that others will, will do that for us should we be in that situation. And so the idea of, in a democracy, it's not that all, I mean, all people should have equal opportunities. All deaths should matter equally, right? Ideally, we all die, you know, when we're 85 years old, surrounded by our friends and loved ones. Um, Like, understanding that accidents happen, and that's probably never possible, it's still a good aspiration that we should have, you know, long lives and good deaths 
Um, and again, when there are clear empirical data-driven observations that suggest that some people don't have that opportunity as a result of conditions that we as a polity have set up and enabled and just not cared about, that suggests that we have an obligation to do something about that. Um, and so really thinking about democracy, not as a, a sort of moral calculus where we shake hands and agree to do things. Although again, I think that's necessary, but not sufficient. Um, but as um, a, a sense of obligation to assist one another, right? And so as Dewey sort of lays it out in the public and its problems, you know, it's not that there's a social contract and then government, it's that there's a group of people who are faced with a problem. Um, and it's not until they realize that they're all sharing the same problem that they think, oh, we should do something about that, right? We should come together and address whatever that problem is, right? If that problem is um, theft of private property, if that problem is a denial of equality, if that whatever that problem is. It's when we realize that we as a public are facing a sort of shared threat that we can come together and, and come up with ways to address that threat, right? Um, and so it's, he says the hardest part of the whole process is getting a public to see themselves as a public, right? So what does it mean to be one of the people who are collectively working to address this threat, right? So if we can't think of ourselves as a public, it makes it very difficult to face whatever that particular problem is, right? Um, the problem remains uh, either, either overwhelming, so we're paralyzed by it. Um, we feel as though we can't do anything, so my vote doesn't matter. Um, we feel as though uh, it's just not worth pursuing because it's not a fixable problem. And he says, one of the things that we have to break through is that sense of apathy or paralysis and learn to see one another as sort of fellow workers um, in a shared way of life of democracy, right? Not simply as citizens who go to the voting the voting booth once every you know year or two, um, or eight as 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 some do. Um, we really need to understand democracy not just as a set of institutions, but as a set of relationships between people. And so I, I'm you know really kind of struck by that and take that up and. And some of the points that Melvin Rogers makes um, about the limitations of this when it comes to racial cleavages in the United States, because in fact, it's clear that the public, as it exists in the United States, has largely been a white public that has decided that other, people, other, other people's losses, the problems that they consistently face, are not ones that, that the white public has, has felt the need to address. And I, I, I mean, I'm hopeful that that's changing. Um, but it is, it is, it is one of the difficult things of, of, of using Dewey to talk about American um, political life is that I don't think he gives us a lot of great tools, except that he has this kind of discussion about rupture, right? So what happens when the institutions that a public has set up can no longer address the problems it was set up to, to fix? Because actually problems have evolved, right? The institution has been sedimented. Um, as the conditions change, the institution hasn't caught up. And so the, the institution has to either be um, reformed or torn down and built anew, right? And so I think we're in one of those moments um, when, uh, does this work? Are, are American institutions up to the task demanded by a multiracial public and a multiracial democracy? And I think that's, that's the really core question of, of, of our time. Yeah, and and I I think there was an op-ed in the Washington Post just yesterday that sort of was sort of asking, do the institutions in the United States still work in the way that they are set up to work? 
um, to say nothing of Twitter threads about like what the founders thought. Um, and they all believe the same thing as we all know, they were in agreement on everything. Um, and, and I, and I wanted to ask you as you were sort of talking about the sort of shared flourishing, I don't want to jump to the epilogue, but I think that the, the sort of constant conversation at the moment around COVID and vaccines and mask wearing certainly is an example of, you know, what you're talking about with regard to how the public sees itself and that the cleavages within the public are um, are not necessarily overcoming this. No, no. I, it, I, so I sent this manuscript off to the publisher uh, in, in early March of 2020. Um, and that was like a, I think I sent it on a Friday and on a Tuesday, I'm pretty sure, or like a Saturday was the day that Ohio shut down because we had the first COVID cases. And how long ago that seems. Um and so I sent it off to the publisher um, and then he and I, the editor and I talked for a bit and it was like, I think I have to write a little bit more because this seems like it's really important. Um, and I'm, I still, I'm so, I'm still so shocked, I guess, at how, at how limited people's understanding of political life is the the kind of like I, corrosive individuality um toxic individuality again like i think individuality is really important it's a crucial building block of society right but it's not the only building block and it has to be tempered by an understanding of no individual comes to to flourish through their own effort alone right um and so understanding um, thinking of, of interdependence as opposed to independence. Um, and if anything, I think what COVID has been most horrifying on is this sense of freedom as a denial of responsibility to others rather than uh, a recognition of, of how we're all sort of connected, whether we want to be or not. Um, and so I, I, I've been so overwhelmed by that, honestly, Lily, that it's been it's been hard for me to think of it in in terms of scholarship and sort of analysis because it it goes against some of my most foundational assumptions about human beings and and you know the majority of people I think don't want to harm other people and are convinced that this is a threat this is a problem that we as the public should face by doing this thing that we've set up to make available for us to like be free from um, the threat of the virus. Um, but that there are some significant portion of people whose understanding of individuality and freedom, I think is, is, is terribly limited. Um, um, and so that has led them to a series of actions that, uh, that I just find hard to understand. Um, and so in thinking about identity and responsibility, right, what is the identity, the identity of the people who are vaccine hesitant um, to me, or, or I'm not sure if it's identity or if it's their understanding of politics, the understanding of science, I'm not actually sure. Um, but something about that has, has led people to to reject an amazing tool. Um, and that's what I just find so so puzzling, and I, I, I honestly don't know how to make sense of it um, through the through the framework that I lay out in the book. Other than, I think it's really telling that the United States, um, with President Trump um, as as the the leader of the, of the country at the time that this started, um, just 
facts were elusive. What was what was the cost of this? What is the problem that we're facing? What are the solutions that we can do? It's also a, a sort of uh, I think many people don't understand the how like how science works. Um, and so somewhere early in the pandemic, I, I remember like grievously asking um, people in my orbit, like, is this a science problem or is this a political problem? And of course we know it's both, right? It's, it's not an either or, but that somehow I think many of our basic understandings of, of how, what science is and how it works, like people just seem to not know that. Um, and that is alarming. And again, to go back to Dewey, he's like, experts matter. We need the experts to educate um, people who aren't experts in those things, um, because that's how we learn, right? And it turns out, like, you know, citizen repu- uh, representation on budgetary processes. When you ask everyday people and give them the tools that they need in order to make sense of the complex priorities that you're faced in a budget process, it turns out they can understand them. Same thing with like peer review and 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 sort of citizen review of of scientific um, materials. And so, like. We need experts because none of us can be experts in everything, and we rely on them to do that. But the the kind of um, the death of expertise, so that we're all sort of sovereign knowers on our own, is one of the things that I find I find most alarming because it it, it feels like it it makes it very difficult for us to work together on to face shared pro- or shared problems. Yes, and you know because everybody can get on Google and find an answer to things, then we are all experts. In all things. Yes. Because <laughs> I, yes. I certainly know I am. Um, <laughs> uh, and and so uh, since I took you to the end of the book, let's go back to the beginning of the book. You have four really fascinating and deep um, case studies. Um, and, and you start with the Triangle Shirtwaist um, fire uh, in, and how this was... Um, a, a sort of interesting example of who does and doesn't belong. Um, can you start by telling us a little bit about how that became the first case study in the book? Yes, absolutely. So it was the first one that I did really significant research on. Um, I originally thought I was going to look at the um, the Tulsa race massacre um, and realize that, in fact, there wasn't actually political change that resulted from that other than like it's erasure from history um until sometime in the last five years or so i grew up in oklahoma i never learned about the tulsa race massacre i took a semester of oklahoma history it was just gone so like i originally started with um the tulsa race massacre because it was you know close to home um and there was no political change and so i thought what you know kind of looking in the same era what what was something that did cause change? Like what was something that actually led to um, political action in the way that I'm, that I was, I was hoping to see. Um, And so the triangle fire is, is one of those, it's just, it's a horrifying, moving, just tragic um, story. And yeah, so it was really compelling to me um, when I was when I was reading about it, and in part because, you know, according to eyewitness accounts, there's, there's, it's like a sunny afternoon in like mid-March in New York City. So like, there's lots of people who are strolling around Washington Square Park, and then this fire breaks out. And there's several thousand people who actually witness um, these, these women and girls jumping to their deaths, right? And so the sense of collective responsibility and the sense of like, 
we all knew this was going to happen. This is not a surprise in any way, right? There had been a similar fire a year before in Newark that was basically the same exact setup, except it was like six stories as opposed to nine. Um, there were only, I think, there were only like 25 or 28 um, workers who, who, who died. But like, it was completely predictable. There are no fire escapes at work. You know, the exit doors open inward. Um, the communication is lagging. The doors are locked, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so like that barely made a blip in the sort of public consciousness. Um, and so I was, I was very intrigued by that because we have a very similar set of circumstances, a totally preventable um, set of deaths. One made this huge splash, gets massive coverage, and the other one doesn't. So the real question to start that one out was like, why? Why does nobody? Why has nobody heard of the Newark fire? And everybody's heard. Of, I mean, not everybody. Why have so many people heard of the Triangle Fire Street fire? Um, and so the thing that it came down to was the strike, right? The strike, um, the uprising of the twenty thousand. I think is is what it's called. Um, that a year before the shirtwaist, uh, the Triangle Fire factory catches on fire. There's this massive effort to like unionize the entire shirtwaist um, industry. And, and it fails, right? Like it doesn't actually manage to unionize the entire industry, um, but it does ma- generate enormous visibility for the strikers and, and the sort of plight of what it means to be an industrial worker um, in urban New York in the, the 1910s. Um, and it's bad, right? Like long working hours, you don't make very much money. You are completely vulnerable to the whims of your um, supervisor, um, and everybody knew that. And like, you know, after the fire, it turns out, you know, the buildings department is responsible for this and the fire department is responsible for that. And the department of utilities is responsible for the other thing. And nobody's checking the fire. Like, so it turns out the responsibility was so diffuse that it was as it was a collective action problem, right? Nobody, no one single entity with power was capable of going in to regulate, you know, the workplace. And so it was this moment when what happens in the workplace ends up having really significant political um, influence, right? Um, and the argument that I make in, the, in that chapter is that it's a moment of our expansion of who counts as one of us because it extends to workers in industrial settings in ways that it just hadn't before, right? The Supreme Court had been very had been very standoffish about um, engaging in workplace disputes to protect workers. And this is an instance where they didn't go to the courts, right? All of this happened through sort of progressive legislation in the state of New York. And part of that is because, you know, individuals, constituents of powerful people were amongst those who died, right? And so they actually drove this. And so, yeah, from from 1911 to like 1916, by 1916, New York has the most progressive um, sort of industrial labor laws in the country. And then that, of course, spreads throughout uh, the rest of the United States as a result of a whole variety of things. Um, but one of them being, you know, Francis Perkins um, is in Washington Square Park on the on the day of the on the day of the fire and ends up sort of orchestrating many of the New Deal labor policies. So it's a really interesting story of how how um, politically we can respond to tragedy in a way that re-signifies and transforms something from private to political. Right. So we made the question of what it means to be a worker that gained political significance. And it was a sense of extended obligation, not just to people in their private lives in terms of freedom of speech and assembly and religion, et cetera, 
but also like we owe you a job that doesn't automatically kill you right and that, that we can use our collective power to regulate the conditions of your labor such that it's not gonna it's not gonna lead to your death um so that's this huge expansion of of sort of collective responsibility to one another but i argue that the sort of dark side of that that we that we don't acknowledge is is how by expanding the boundaries of belonging to include the not quite whites in those who are protected by government power um it ends up making the people who are definitely not white they get pushed even farther out of the frame right so um there's not very many um, black people in New York in, in 1911. I mean, it's in the process of, of massively expanding with uh, the Great Migration. And so there's this huge sort of doubling and tripling of um, the number of black people in, in New York. But that question, since it, it's sort of the sense of like, well, we've let some people in. Should we let all of the people in? Of course not. Um, and so the, the sort of denial of worker status to agricultural workers and domestic workers um, in the New Deal, Social Security legislation and employment um, insurance is an example of, of how like that, that once the border got expanded, it got a little hardened and like we can let the not quite whites in, but letting the black people in is just a step too far. Right. And so it makes invisible the losses suffered by those groups who are even kind of farther on, on the edges. And so like really an important um, event to celebrate because it, it leads to an expansion of the boundaries of belonging. But what happens to the people who are still on the other side of that boundary? And the answer is their lives get worse. Right. Or at least they don't get better. They're not improved by that expansion when it doesn't include them. And, and, and as a result of that, the, the sort of regulations are not there at all, as you know for agricultural workers and so forth. And it's almost as if that's a job that that doesn't exist in a certain sense right. um, or it doesn't have any harm attached to it. Right. Um, There's no regulation, right. And, and yes, and that becomes, and that's still the case. I mean, it, it's still seen as essentially employment that doesn't have a public character, even though if anything, if we've learned anything in the pandemic, it should be that like, actually having people picking food and processing meat and like staffing grocery stores is probably like thing number one we should be focused on but somehow that has been written out of of our understanding of labor right of, of regulatable kind of labor conditions and so you move from the triangle fire to emmett till um and um and i have been to the african-american history museum and the, the casket that he was buried in um, is there on display. And as I understand it from one of the um, archivists there, that the requirement um, for, from the family to, to donate that was that it always remain on display, that it never, ever be taken down, essentially, or changed around. Um, and so this, this particular incident in our history um, is one that also galvanizes a kind of mourning. Um, how do you move from the sort of regulation of workers in um, Lower Manhattan to um, essentially the lynching of Emmett Till? Yeah. Um, so in, in both of the cases, I'm really curious about the precursors, right? So like there's the strike followed by the fire, which leads to this sort of change in legislation. Um, and of course, as, as somebody who, who does law and society um, and sort of legal studies, um, 
stuff as well. The question of Brown v. Board and like what that actually did, of course, is always a that's always a live debate in scholarly circles. Um, and so that you have Brown v. Board one in 1954, you have Brown v. Board two in 1955. Emmett Till's murder follows um, the Brown v. Board two decision by a couple of weeks. Um, and it is such a stark, like you have this, you have the Supreme Court with a unanimous decision that separate is never equal. It can't be equal, right? And then you have such a clear repudiation of that on the ground um, in Mississippi. And so the difference between those things are so stark. And so law on the books has changed, but it hasn't changed people's actions in any way, right? Like white Mississippi men are still killing black Mississippi boys, right? Or killing black boys in Mississippi. And so the juxtaposition between this massive, massively important legal event that didn't stop a murder that was premeditated and cold-blooded um, and so in thinking of why, and, and the fascinating thing too is there are a tremendous number of people who, of, of African-Americans who later end up as leaders in the civil rights movement, who talk about Till's death as the thing that really, it's the, the kind of emotional center um, of, of many of the early activists. Um, because it is so senseless, because if, because his whatever, whether it was a transgression or not, whatever he did was so minimal, and the response was so overwhelmingly violent that the the kind of disproportionality is so viscerally unjust um, that I and and the other thing is like even if you even if you live in Chicago, right? Even if you are a young man. Um, even if your indiscretion with quotes around it is slight, none of that will protect you from white domination, right? Um, and so I think there's something about his story that is just so profound. It's, it just points out the limitations um, of our system in, in, in really profound ways. Um, and so there too, the question is like, the law says X, and here we have not X. Um, and so how is it that we account for the kind of difference between those things? And then Till's, uh, the trial of Till's killers, um, his mother's sort of agency to, to refuse to have him put in the ground, like his family was about to put him in the ground in Mississippi. And she calls and is like, you send my boy home, right? The sheriff threatens to arrest her and she's like, let him try. So like Mamie Till Bradley is an absolute heroine. She also, you know, immediately calls labor leaders, immediately sends texts to her um, her congressional representative, immediately reaches out to media, like tele- sends a telegram to, um, to President Eisenhower, to which he doesn't respond. Um, so she does all of these things to sort of generate visibility in ways that are really really unusual and she refuses to accept no for an answer and one of the things that's interesting is like there's two other black men who are i mean i think there's actually more but there's two other black men in mississippi who are murdered by white supremacists one of them is you know registering voters and he's shot and at noon in the town square by you know um unknown persons even though it's like literally outside the door to the sheriff's like they just they just didn't care um 
And then there's another man who's driving around rural Mississippi registering voters and is shot. He's a veteran. And so he's shot, I believe, in the head or chest, and they leave his casket open with a flag um, sort of near the casket. Um, but it doesn't get any press at all. Like nobody covers it. It gets a little piece in like, um, I think the Chicago Defender, but you know, it's a couple inches. Um, and so the question of why it is that Till's murder just explodes. Uh, the there's the population of the town where the trial is basically like it doubles during the trial because there's so many news people there. Like ABC, NBC, and CBS are literally like leaving the trial, throwing footage on the plane and flying it to New York for the evening broadcast. Like it's just this massive media sensation. Um, and so my argument is that it kind of generates a change under it. it it helps white people in the North understand that like Brown v. Board is really important. That hasn't changed conditions in the South really in the slightest. And if anything, it may have made things more dangerous because it is out in the open and explicit um, that so-called miscegenation is, is a reality because these black boys and white girls are going to be in school together. Um, and so it does a kind of awakening, um, I think, of, of white sort of, you know, the moderate liberals that, uh, that King condemns, um, you know, a few months later, uh, he, he can do that in part because white liberals in the North are also looking at what's happening and realizing that the stories they're hearing are not matching what's actually happening, right? In terms of like, oh, you know, our, our citizens are all happy and all black people can vote what want to vote. And like, of course the law will address these things. We treat all of our citizens equally. It becomes very clear that all of that is just not true, right? Um, and so, so white Northerners are suddenly sort of brought into the fight you know, on this emotional level, um, in part because Mamie Till brings Emmett's waterlogged, absolutely brutalized body and puts it on display. Right. And, and really asks people to say, I think this is fine. If you don't think this is fine, then you should do something. Right. Um, and it's stunning. I mean, his body is just mangled and it's said around the world. Um, most white people don't see it um, because the white press doesn't publish those images. Um, but Jet does two runs the first time it's ever done that. Um, and so many, many. African Americans see that image and it becomes a really important sort of emotional touch point. So Frederick Harris has a piece called It Takes a Tragedy to Arouse Them. And one of the things that he that he points out, he like does public opinion polls and, and looks at at events that sort of um, people responded to with action. Like, did it lead them to join a group? Did it lead them to go to a protest, et cetera? And and Emmett Till's death actually ends up being the thing that the event in the sort of mid-50s that is most mobilizing. Um, and so it's a really interesting story of uh, a public, right, a white public suddenly starting to think, wow, this is a problem. And this is a problem not just for those people, but in fact, it's a problem for me. Like it's affecting, it's affecting our democracy in really fundamental ways. And part of that, too, is because it turns out uh, uh, it, it was not good for our public image abroad as we're trying to win the cold war. Um, and so, you know, Derek Bell's, uh, Oh my God, what's the name of it? 
I can't remember, but Derek Bell's piece um, about the uh, the interest convergence dilemma, right? White people only do what's good for black people when it's in white people's interest. Um, and, and it could be that that's one thing that's going on with Till, but I also think it's such a profoundly visceral, horrifying event um, that people are mobilized to act. And so um, uh, President Eisenhower, for the first time since the 18... 18- 70s, 80s, ends up talking about civil rights um, for the first time in his uh, State of the Union address. There's the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which is a pretty weak bill, but it ends up setting in motion um, a sort of conversation and and an institutional move towards taking civil rights seriously. So it ends up doing something important. And and so you you have these earlier in the 20th century events that sort of galvanize and move populations to the public towards um, political outcomes. And then you have sort of a much more telescoped kind of period where you look at 9-11. And as you know, you were in New York at the time and you look at Black Lives Matter, um, which is is still ongoing, obviously, and unfortunately still um, wrapping around the um, the deaths of more black bodies, mostly male bodies. Um, and we just had the the Derek Chauvin trial um, with regard to George Floyd. And we had these protests last summer in the middle of the pandemic. So in these more contemporary examples, can you talk a little bit about how they both um, obviously led to sort of mourning experiences, obviously by the entire public with regard to 9-11 and a global response to that? Um but also we had a global response to the killing of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one of the things in, in um, my, the, the third reviewer of my book did such a great job of getting me to really try to articulate what I was saying in, um, in the, the September 11th chapter. Um, and so one of the things that, that I come up with in that chapter is the distinction between what I call sovereign mourning and sort of democratic mourning. Um, the thing that's so fascinating, which again, for many of us is hard to remember because that time period was so turbulent and compressed and the internet was, you know, still pretty new. Um, most of us were still using dial up or at least I was. Um, and so like the access to information was not as overwhelming as it is now. Um, but one of the things that in that like week immediately after September 11th, um, that becomes clear is, is that, uh, political elites, administration elites, were very unified in their efforts to to sort of remove 9/11 from the realm of politics and take it to like it to essentially an existential threat. So the the sort of precursor event, right, is the the um, the, the previous World Trade Center bombing, um, and. The fascinating thing about um, President Clinton and the United States' response was to treat it as a, as a crime, not as an act of war, right? And so the FBI and the CIA probably did a lot of things that I would be uncomfortable with, but they also found people and prosecuted them in a court of law. So it remained a question of normal politics in, in the sort of you know, rupture versus normal. So we treated it like it was a crime, not like it was an existential threat or an act of war. Um, And so what's fascinating about 9-11 is that that was taken off the table immediately by the Bush administration, which responded to it as though it was an attack not on people, 
but an attack on the state, even though Al-Qaeda was not a state actor, right? It was a non-sovereign entity. Um, and so the interesting thing is that in that removal of the step of determining whether or not there was legal responsibility in terms of crime versus not crime, it got moved. It, it, the question of political responsibility and just responsibility in general got very, very mangled. Um, in part, it encouraged us, since it was an existential threat rather than a political one, um, it encouraged Americans not to see it as um, anything that we had responsibility for or that we bore any responsibility for setting up conditions in the Middle East such that 19 people thought this was a perfectly great way to die, right? Like we actually played a role in that. Um, that got taken off the table entirely. Um, and as Judith Butler says in Precarious Life, um, I want to be really clear that explanation is not exoneration. I am not exonerating. I'm not making no effort to exonerate what they did is terrible, right? On the other hand, to understand why it happened so that we can prevent things like that from happening in the future, we need to understand why, right? We need to, we need to actually know um, what people did and why they did it and think about the conditions that led to the rise of those things. Um, and so in that instance, what's fascinating is that uh, administration elites are like existential problem, we must bomb them. Um, and many Americans, everyday Americans, as well as um, non-governmental sort of actors were much less willing to immediately jump to war. They were much more interested in like, well, maybe this is a moment when we can actually think about what who we are in the world, right? Because again, think about the, the context. We were the sole superpower. We, we have, we had a big army and nowhere to send it. Um, and so the question of, of what we do with that um, was a live one, right? Fukuyama writes the end of history and was that 99 that he writes that? And so- 89. Um, 89, oh goodness, I'm off by a decade. Um, so he writes that and, and it becomes a real question, right? Who is America? And it turns out we become, you know, the people who are prosecuting terrorism across the world. Um, and in doing so, creating breeding grounds for a lot more terrorists, right? So that question of, of sort of how mourning gets turned into preserving state and state institutions instead of preserving people, um, instead of creating spaces for flourishing for individuals, um, leads to a whole series of what I think are often very misplaced priorities, right? Again, not to say we need no effort to sort of preserve institutions, but when it felt like that was the sole goal, um, I think that's deeply problematic. And then I think we actually see a similar sort of thing in, in the response of All Lives Matter, um, which is like, um, uh, police do good, police did X, therefore X is good, right? Um, so like, America is good, um, America protects freedom, and therefore, the thing we do must be protecting freedom, freedom as well, right? And so that's that that sort of false analogy um, that the police are doing always the right thing, and it you know if if these black if these young black people were not in this situation, then they wouldn't be shot. Um, I think there's something similar going on in the sort of misattribution of responsibility and a failure to actually think about how institutions are set up to do exactly the things that they're doing. Um, yes, and in both instances, what I would like to turn us back to is the people, 
right? The, the lives that have been lost unnecessarily and what we can do to prevent that from happening in the future, right? How we can empower um, people who are not a member of our particular political community, how we as Americans can support democracy abroad as opposed to perhaps stability. Sometimes we encourage stability at the cost of democracy and it might be that we should stop doing that. Um, and in the same way, we need to figure out how to empower, you know, um, communities of color in the United States and poor people in the United States so that uh, maybe we need to take some money away from um, the police and put it in other places um, in order to ensure that people have the ability to flourish. Because when they have the ability to flourish, they will. And you and I were talking about this a little bit before we started recording a counterexample if you will, of the, the four case studies that you sort of provide and the outcomes, the various kinds of outcomes, they are not the same kinds of outcomes, but there is political, um, out, there are political outcomes, is the, the um, Charleston shooting um, in the, the late period of the Obama administration that, that moves um, President Obama so much that he he does provide the eulogy there and, and, and he begins to sing Amazing Grace by himself, which I don't think we've seen a lot of presidents do. Um, and, and so that is another, you know, another very public mourning experience. And unfortunately, we've had so many shootings where presidents do um, come and, and are either present or they speak. Um, but this one in particular I thought was a little bit different than many because it was it was such a, a vibrant church in the community, and and this was such a a, a, a sort of absolute um, example of this sort of white terror. Um, can you talk about how that doesn't quite fit into your theoretical context? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I also wrote a piece on Charleston looking at why it was that the Confederate flag was removed from the state capitol 20-something days after um, the Mother Emanuel massacre, when it had been there for 60-something years, despite numerous efforts to boycott and remove it and protest, etc. Those had been ineffective. And so what was it about this particular event that mobilized many formerly supportive um, white people in South Carolina to be like, it's time, it's time for that to be a historical rather than a political symbol. Right. Um, and so the thing, like, again, I, I think it's really important that our response to this God awful event, right. Just horrifying. Our response to that was again, I think tempered by identity. Right. So I think it was really important, for example, that the that the people who were killed in that church were um, several old people. There were a fair number of women. Um, uh, they were they were almost universally sort of upstanding members of the community. Um, had it been a group of like twenty five year old black men, um, I'm not sure that the response would have been the same, right? Because they were they were you can imagine a way in which they were not innocent if that had been the case, right? Um, and so the question of identity, I think, becomes really important um, in uh, who, the, who it was that died actually generates a certain kind of sympathy uh, in ways that becomes politically productive. 
Um, and the question of responsibility. And so like here, I think what ends up happening is um, we substituted a, a symbolic gesture for political change, right? So removing the flag is super important. Don't get me wrong, right? But would it not have made more, uh, a, a larger political effect if in recompense for flying the flag of the Confederacy for 60 something years, the state of, Car- of South Carolina decided to, you know, fund two years of community college for every uh, black student in the state um, or decided to decriminalize, um, uh, you know, marijuana or decided to provide housing for all people equally, um, did something substantive to signify inclusion into the community as opposed to symbolically say, well, now that the flag's gone, clearly we're one of us, right? So like that was, again, it's necessary. It was long overdue. Um, I'm really glad that it happened, but I don't think it signifies some big change. I think mostly um, it was an opportunity for people to pat themselves on the back and be like, go team, good job. Um, And not actually put any, any sort of skin in the game. And as we already discussed, the the COVID-19 is certainly giving you a lot of um, fuel and and unfortunately examples of so much of what you're discussing in this book. But I am curious as to what you're working on now. (laughs) I assume, like many scholars, my work has been largely derailed. Um, by uh, by COVID because it's really hard to write about death in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it's a little bit overwhelming. Um, also, my next book is going to be about puppies and rainbows um, because in fact, I don't want to write about death anymore. It's super hard. I don't like it. Um, I don't think that's actually true. I think I will continue to do that. Um, but I have been I have been casting about for my next project. One, one piece that I'm working on is... Um, uh, co-authored with uh, my friend Allison Rank um, on the Black Panther in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a, a piece that you know something about. Um, uh, so we're hoping that, to get that in an edited volume soon. And so again, thinking about Black political thought um, and how the sort of there's three different stories about uh, how we get free in in Black Panther, um, and and so we're we're analyzing that. Um, I suspect I'll be doing a little more pop culture um, because it turns out that's super interesting and really fun to write about. Um, and also, again, I, I feel like I need a break from um, I need a break from death and mourning for a little while, I, and hopefully we all get a break from that um, soon. Um, but I'm I'm casting about. I think I may I may I may make a turn a little more towards. Um, I've done a lot of stuff with race. I may be making a bit of a turn um, back towards gender, which is originally how I kind of got into all of this in the first place. Um, but I, I'm not prepared to discuss any specifics just yet, shall we say. That's fine. Whenever you produce the next book, I would love to talk to you about it on the New Books Network. So I hope you'll return. Thank um, you very much. I will. I will look forward to that. I am joined today by Heather Poole, who is the author of Political Morning, Identity and Responsibility in the Wake of Tragedy, published in 2021 by Temple University Press. I assume this is available at the Temple University Press website. Is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence to which you would like to give a shout out? I mean, your local one, um, they can they can order it from uh, from Temple University Press. Um, you can always go to the big ones. There's Powell's. I would always give a plug out for um, the University of Washington's uh, bookstore because it's one of my favorite places in the world. 
Um, uh, but if, but your local, your local bookstore can order it for you. I would encourage you to do that or order directly from Temple. Well, thank you for joining me today, Heather. It was a pleasure to talk to you about this fascinating book. Thank you so much, Willie.